Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Jocelyn Brown, sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about Heat Rock, you know, an album that burns its way into our collective memory. And today, we will be getting lost in the stars by revisiting the 1959 album by singer Abby Lincoln, Abby is Blue. With all the glow of sunrise, a burning kiss is sealing the vow that all betrayed. In her early days, the artist-born Anna Marie Woolridge tried out a series of stage names, hoping one would click. These included Anna Marie, Gabby Lee, and Gabby Woolridge, but eventually she landed on the nom de plume that she'd be forever associated with, Abby Lincoln. The name sounded stately and dignified, words that might also describe Lincoln herself as a vocalist. Showy runs or power belting weren't her style. As jazz critic Nate Shinnan wrote after Abby's passing in 2010, quote, her singing style was unique, a combined result of bold projection and expressive restraint, unquote. In short, Abby understood how to convey emotion through subtlety and nuance, something she may have learned from her own inspiration, Billie Holiday. Abby is Blue came out in the early part of her career, just her fourth studio LP at that point, and it's an album filled with a youthful, romantic sentiment befitting an artist still in her 20s, not to mention likely falling in love with session drummer and future husband Max Roach. Backed by the likes of Roach, the Turrentine brothers, Stanley and Tommy, and a host of other A-side players, Abby sang through a selection of tunes from a vibrant cast of songwriters, including Duke Ellington, Oscar Brown, Kurt Vile, and most notably, Lincoln herself. In her later years, she'd be embraced not just as a singer, but also songwriter, and Abby is Blue features one of her earliest compositions, The Smoky Let Up. And though she sings in the song that, quote, this heartache is dragging me down, unquote, there's no question that Abby herself was an artist on the come up. Abby is Blue was the album pick of our guest today, Senya Rubinos. Senya is a talented multi-instrumentalist and storyteller, drawing inspiration from such genres as salsa, merengue, hip-hop, jazz, and punk to create work that is wholly her own. Her second album, Black Terry Cat, was released to critical acclaim. She has collaborated with other innovative, like-minded musicians, among them Halado Negro, Deerhoof, and Battles. Much like Abby Lincoln, Senya's songs are bold, expansive, powerful, and wise, exploring identity, society, and culture through a soulful lens. It's a perceptive and fresh perspective that stands out to me as a fan, and one that we all need now more than ever. Senya, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you so much. That is such a beautiful introduction. You've earned it. How are you? And what was your introduction to Abby Lincoln? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, My introduction was my parents, actually. Well, my family, my mom, 
used to have this record lying around at the bottom of the stereo. There was this little compartment in the furniture that the stereo was housed in that just had random <laughs> stuff in it, like a you know, like a screwdriver, a candle, and then some cassettes and this record, this vinyl record. And we had a turntable that was never ever used. And I rem- and I remember because we just didn't have records. Uh, but it probably came with the system. I don't know. So I remember just dropping the needle on this album and hearing Abby's voice. Uh, I was 13 years old mm-hmm. and was into singing and had, you know, I grew up listening to pop singers like Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. They were my heroes or my sheroes. And I just remember hearing Abby's voice and I had never heard anything like that before. And he stated and promised he'd take special care so it wouldn't get lost no more. That's really special. And that's kind of that that age, you know, I feel like where most kids are kind of finding their zone with music, right? They're finding things that are of interest to them and sparking different ideas. My personal introduction to her work kind of happened to be through her contributions to Max Roach's We Insist Freedom Now Suite. I didn't hear that until I was in in my early 20s, but it was really revelatory to me. And there's this part, you know, the vocal shift that she makes between the track prayer and protest on that album. She's really just doing basic vocalizations, but that has always stuck with me. My introduction to Abby Lincoln actually came through my wife, uh, Sharon Mazota. And this was back when the two of us were basically pen pals. Uh, We were in our mid-20s. I was living in the Bay Area. She was in New York. And I remember this really distinctly because we'd been corresponding for, for months, maybe even close to a year, before we ever met one another in person. And when we first did link up uh, on a trip that I made out to New York, she brought along an Abby Lincoln CD for me to listen to. I don't think it was this album in particular, but for that reason, I did invite her to share what it was, because she was a fan of Abby Lincoln, right? She was my, my doorway into listening to any of Lincoln's work. And I asked her to share what it was about Abby Lincoln that appealed to her. I think when I started listening to Abby Lincoln, I was in a very sad and melancholic part of my late 20s. And there's something about the depth of her voice and the sort of vein of melancholy that her voice kind of minds that really appealed to me. So I think when I met you, that's sort of the the frame I was in. And I listened to her earlier stuff, but I was really listening to some of the stuff that came later when she's a little bit older and she's kind of looking back on her life and there's even more sort of depth and resonance and grit in her voice. And I think that that just really appealed to me as someone who felt like I was getting older and starting to look back on my life, which at that point was very short. 
but still give you this feeling of resonance and perspective. And Sydney, since you mentioned that you discovered this album because it was an album that your parents had, did you ever ask them about what it is about Abby Lincoln that they that, that they liked? Well, it was my mom's boyfriend at the time who was into jazz and he had a couple of, he was more into kind of Latin fusion, Latin jazz. Mm -hmm. Um, But every once in a while, something like this would sneak out like Billie Holiday or Abby Lincoln. Yeah. Um, And he was just kind of on his cool guy. You know, (laughs) I go to jazz concerts in the park in the summertime. (laughs) What's up? Like Latin power, like black power. He was like, let's go. Um, you know, I put I put the needle on the on the turntable on that record when I was 13. But those sounds, I remember them from as early as like six or seven years old. I remember her voice in our house. Wow, and wow. I remember that voice uh, mm. when they were falling in love, when my mom and her boyfriend were falling in love. Mm. Um, and my parents had split up. We moved to an apartment and um and my mom's boyfriend would come over and it was an apartment where you had to call to like be led upstairs. Right. Right. And I would sometimes answer and, um, I would say, mom, it's the man with the sexy voice. And, you know, <laughs> wow. Now, now I feel like we kind of need to hear this voice, but okay. Okay. <laughs> I haven't heard it in a long, they're in a long yeah. together. Yeah. Didn't, didn't end well. So I associate that kind of smokiness, that sexiness and also melancholy. Yeah. You know, I, I remember, I was, I'm an only child and I just remember sitting around on the weekends, just entertaining myself singing, like singing to Mariah Carey, just being basically alone all the time. And, uh, and I think that there was something that resonated with me on that level as well, this melancholy. And it's, it's really funny that, um, that your wife's experience about her life looking back, reminiscing in her twenties. Right. Right. I, I feel similarly in my teen years, you know, of like reminiscing about, I don't know what kind of pain and some, you know, loss that I had when I was seven or something, you know, (laughs) it's like, and I think there's something really, you know, that, that could appeal to a teenager in, that angst, you know, that teenage right. angst and that depth of feeling when you're discovering new music, that music just hits in a completely different way. Right. So in terms of the album in particular, you know, this is something that we're now talking about this LP 50, no, 60 plus years after it was recorded. And in thinking about this LP that you discovered when you were a teenager, what is it about it that makes it a heat rock for you? I think it's the soundtrack of my life. Abby Lincoln is, she's, you know, when I, it was very difficult to narrow down albums and I felt a lot of pressure and listened to several episodes of your podcasts and all of the incredible, you know, prolific musicians that are speaking with such expertise so eloquently about these albums. And I thought, well, I just need to pick what is real for me, like what really happened. Um, and and so I think I, de- I identified it as a really important album of my life because that voice has accompanied me um, just growing up. You know, Mm. so it's not necessarily that I am an expert in, you know, its personnel and, you know, stories about its recording or anything like that. It's more just that on a 
cellular level, um, that album in particular, those songs, I spent a lot of time with them. I would sing them all the time when I was a teenager discovering jazz. Um, I spent a, I spent a lot of time in a stairwell, you know, with good natural reverb. Yes. Just belting out these songs. This is the, uh, the, the, the Uptown Bronx project special right there, right? It's all <laughs> about singing in the hallways and in the stairwells because yeah, you get that natural reverb and echo. So yeah. Jocelyn, how about you? What, what, yeah, what are your thoughts on this album in particular? You know, I love that you say, Senya, that that this is an album of your life, and it's almost like she's a fellow spiritual traveler, you know, in, in that sense with you. And for me, this is the first time I'd ever really encountered this album, and sitting with it and listening to it, it she's so evocative with her vocals that it took me into a tire, an entirely different place. It felt like walking through a movie. And I really loved that because it took me out of my immediate space and into this other, you know, imagined reality. You know, when you hear her singing Afro Blue, you're imagining two lovers in a cafe just kind of gazing at one another. Or even when you're thinking about, you know, all of the other tracks that are there, it's clear that some of this is really hitting home to her in a personal way as she's singing and as she's vocalizing it. And it says a lot to me that, you know, as a vocalist, she's so powerful in what she does that she can take a listener completely to a different mental environment. And I, I guess that's what I'm loving most about this album is, is feeling like I've been on a bit of a journey in listening to it. Lovers in flight, upward they glide, burst at the height, slowly subside, shades of delight, cocoa you, rich as the night. For me, let me preface this by saying that um, even though my, myself and my wife named our daughter after Ella Fitzgerald, I would not describe myself as a jazz vocal super fan in terms of knowing who all the major players or their catalogs are in the same way that I might have similar knowledge for, let's say, hip hop or soul music. And I realized listening to this album in particular, that this is one of the first jazz albums that I've really sat with that was not filled with what I think we would now consider to be the mega canonical standards that come from the songbooks of, let's say, Cole Porter or Rodgers and Hart, Johnny Mercer, etc. So it was refreshing for me to hear an album um, that didn't have those same, you know, half dozen uh, songs that everyone else and their cousin have recorded. I feel that that for me as a young person um, discovering jazz and hearing a lot of the standards for the first time and also listening to instrumental jazz like Miles Davis, John Coltrane for the first time, I found this album refreshing because it was full of bops. Like it was full of jams that nobody really, that I had never heard before, but that seemed very unbothered by the tradition somehow. And it seemed that that her rendition of these songs was, it, they were very centered on her vocal performance and not on a, you know, a soloist blowing over changes. To, to the way I perceive it still today, it's all about her vocals and all about the song and her interpretation. And I found that really refreshing because it, I felt like it opened a door for, for me to have space and for me to, in the, in the music. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about how that voice in terms of where does Lincoln fit into the general pantheon of other jazz vocalists. And 
the restraint that Nate Shannon was talking about in his uh, obituary uh, for her really is what keeps coming to mind because she doesn't have like a really big, at least not in this era, but listening to some of her later stuff, I don't feel like she ever had like a big showy run phase, right? She wasn't trying to, you know, overwhelm me with melisma or, or things along those lines. Um, and even though you can hear, I think, especially in this album, just the faintest of traces of Billie Holiday's influence, a little bit in kind of the inflections and curls to the voice, you would never confuse it. And from my perspective, you would never confuse Abby Lincoln for, for Billie Holiday. I guess the, the two questions I have here is one, where do you see Lincoln fitting into the kind of that community or pantheon of jazz vocalists? Um, and very much connected to that, and you've already touched on this a little bit, is as a singer yourself, what do you hear when you hear her sing? I think in terms of her fitting into this canon of, you know, iconic jazz singers, she doesn't fit in. And as a matter of fact, many casual jazz listeners or the average listener probably has never heard of Abby Lincoln on the same scale that they've heard of Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday. She's, you know, Abby Lincoln is kind of a B-side, you know, she's kind of in the cut, like is not really um, someone who is revered you know, as many of her peers were. However, I feel that she's a uh, kind of like a predecessor or um, part of the canon of, say, Nina Simone. And I believe that what they both have in common is that although that they're highly skilled vocalists and musicians, neither of them are out here, um, yeah, blowing chops over changes. They're telling stories. They're almost more like songwriters really than a jazz vocalist that you that you hire to your band to mm. you know mm. to to sing this head and scat you know so mm. neither of them were really doing that i guess i would have to be fact checked on like nina simone not scatting but i don't i think nina simone is not remembered uh right. for you know scatting or right kind of right. This. so i think I would, you know, group Abby Lincoln in more with the Nina Simone than actually in a, a Billie Holiday. And you asked the second question was how I hear her. Yeah. I mean, as a singer yourself, what do you hear in her voice when she sings? I hear this kind of tragic spookiness to her voice. That is my favorite in, uh, in singers, especially from that period or in jazz or in general, even salsa singers like La Lupe, who is also someone who is not that celebrated really in the canon of, of salsa singers, for example, like Celia Cruz, you know, right. it's like, it's like you can think about, it's like Billie Holiday being like the Celia Cruz equivalent and then, um, yeah, and La Lupe kind of being Abby Lincoln equivalent, you know, and it's she has this this um, voice that is just kind of frightening at times, I think. It's kind of mm. ghostly mm. and very tragic. She's bending notes and kind of outside. You're like, is that in tune? Is it not? Is she in? Is she not? Rhythmically, you're like, wait, did she forget to come in? Is what's going on? And I think... As a vocalist, that's incredibly inspiring. You know, it's kind of out of, again, it's out of that jazz canon of let me show you my chops, you know? And it's, as a vocalist, I hear that as an invitation to try stuff. And it's it's almost like an invitation to access that that music, you know? And to to emphasize more of your, your personal interpretation, your personal feeling. 
to the song. I don't know if I answered the question, but Oh, no, hopefully. no, on point, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Troubled dogs the track of Thursday's child This world could be And I love that you draw that comparison there to Nina Simone and that depth of feeling that that sense of having seen some things, been through some things, experienced some things. And there is a little bit of darkness and spookiness that comes along with that in life, right? I love that about Abby Lincoln as a vocalist. But even more than that, she has a sense of wit that comes through whenever she's singing, especially in, with Laugh, Clown, Laugh. There's a degree of wit and understanding, but also at the same time kind of heckling that I really like about that song. It's 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 very much a, a feeling of you think you've seen some things, but you haven't seen anything yet, so buckle up. Even really cool. though something inside is grieving, laugh clown, laugh clown. Don't let your heart grow too mellow. I feel that there that sometimes, you know, jazz like classic jazz singers there's like some kind of pandering to the tradition and to to the male orchestra that they're that they may be backed by or to you know to what the audience is expecting or how they're expecting to hear these popular songs and I feel that basically you know Abby Lincoln and Nina Simone just don't give uh mm, they, they just don't care you know there's a very carefree um feeling to their vocals where it's just like i'm gonna just tell it how it is you know and i'm gonna sing about stuff that other people are not little stars big stars blowing through the night and we're lost We'll be back with more of our conversation with Senya Rubinos on Abby is Blue after a brief word from our Sibling Max Fun podcasts. Don't go anywhere. Hey, it's John Moe. And look, these are challenging times for our mental and emotional health. I get it. That's why I'm so excited for my new podcast, Depression Mode. We're tackling depression, anxiety, trauma, stress, the kinds of things that are just super common but don't get talked about nearly enough. Conversations that are illuminating, honest, and sometimes pretty funny with folks like Kelsey Dara, Open Mike Eagle, and Patton Oswalt. Humphrey Bogart was never in therapy. And then my dad said, yeah, but he smoked a carton of cigarettes a day. So he was in therapy. Plus psychiatrists, psychologists, and all kinds of folks. On Depression Mode, we're working together, learning, helping each other out. We're a team. Join our team. Depression Mode for Maximum Fun, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Janet Farney, host of the JV Club podcast. Ah, oh, high school. Was it a time of adventure, romance, and discovery? Class of 95, we did it! Or a time of angst, 
disappointment, and confusion. We're all tied together by four years of trauma at this place, but enjoy adulthood, I guess. The truth is, it was both. So join me on the JV Club podcast where I invite some great friends like Kristen Bell, Angela Kinsey, Oscar Nunez, Neil Patrick Harris, and Keegan-Michael Key to talk about high school, the good, the bad, and everything in between. My teenage mood swings are getting harder to manage. The JV Club. Find it on Maximum Fun. And we're back here on Heat Rocks talking about Abby Lincoln's Abby is Blue with our guest, Senya Rubinos. You know, I want to talk a bit about, you know, we know that Abby Lincoln began her career as an actress, but she transitioned into work as a musician and vocalist right before the dawn of the civil rights movement. I'd like to play a brief segment from the beginning of the recent PBS documentary, How It Feels to Be Free, where she talks about this decision a bit. I made a movie called The Girl Can't Help It with Jane Mansfield and uh, Lula Richards. That's In a dress that Marilyn Monroe wore in a movie called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Well, what does that make me? She was a chanteuse. Sexy dresses. She rolled around on the piano. She more or less ran from that image. And she ran to the role of a truth teller. I saw myself as beautiful, but I didn't see myself as an imitation of anybody, but an original. She told me, she said, you know what I did with that dress? I threw it in a furnace. I watched this documentary front to back at at least two or three times in the past week and a half. And every time I'm haunted by that segment and I think about the courage it must have taken at that time to assert herself both with Hollywood and with recording industry in that way. And I have to ask you, do you think there's a point at which most artists begin to reckon with personal identity and the politics surrounding it in their work? Well, I can't speak for other artists, but I can say that I definitely did and do struggle with that. And I think as a young singer i i went to i was very privileged and i went to study music at um at a music college conservatory and when i arrived i was really excited to be a jazz singer i want to do this i want to learn more about this and what i was confronted with was a male dominated environment in which uh women were reduced yeah to kind of like this i'm just out here rolling around on a piano and wearing cute dresses and and you know I remember guys specifically saying like, oh, she doesn't even know what key this is in or she doesn't know whatever. Don't ask her because she doesn't know. And, you know, I really took that to heart and kind of ran away from singing. I quit singing for several years throughout most of my college years. I didn't sing anymore. And I uh, went into composition because I I really wanted to learn and I wanted to be as good as the guys. And I wanted my respect. So you know, that that was a, a huge moment for me in terms of, you know, trying to find my identity in music. And later on, you know, most recently releasing um, my last record, I was being pigeonholed into uh, Latin music. And if you listen to, to my last record, I don't sing any, there's not even one song in Spanish. And it's mostly influenced by hip hop, 
uh, R&B, jazz, that those are that's the music that I was uh, exploring in that record. And it was incredibly uh, sad and offensive that just because I am Latina and, uh, you know, I I'm proud about my background and my family, where my family comes from, that I would be, you know, my album would be described as Latin music. And, you know, I was I was very grateful for the press that that album received, including um, just being on the best albums list of the year on NPR and the New York Times. But I remember seeing that end of the year albums list. And then I scroll down and above my name, it says Latin. And I was so angry. I was, I can't, I was like shaking and I, I got, I don't know, I got on Twitter and I was like, this is outrageous, you know? And I, Mm. and I, um, mentioned NPR music. I tagged them and I said, tell me what it is that's Latin music about my record. And I swear to God, like not even two hours later, they had removed all of the genres from every album in that list. It's not that I'm saying that I'm not proud of where I come from or what, how I identify, you know, but if we're talking about music, we're talking about music, you know, and I disagree with the notion that because an artist is Venezuelan, that they're a Latin artist. They are not. They are an artist. And you, if you're talking about their music, you talk about what kind of music they're making and what you're hearing, what you're describing uh, that you're hearing. Um, a lot of these labels really do minimize an artist's work. What is the fire track off of this album for you? And especially, I think you actually already hinted at this in the, the first half, but what, what is the song that just does it for you still after all this time? I mean, honestly, the whole record does it, but definitely Let Up yeah. is my probably my number one yeah. pick on this album. Just her, it's just so soulful. It's just, it feels like she's not putting anything on. She's just telling you what it is. And there's something that just hits me straight in the heart of that. Um, and also probably because lyrically, uh, there's not much in terms of like different lyrics happening, right. you know, and, and that kind of has this punk aspect to it. Whereas <laughs> like, you know, in a, in a punk song, you might be like, I like food, food is good. You know, and like, that's the, that's the song. It's like in this song, she's like, let up, yeah. you know, let yeah. me like, let me live. Like, please let me get out of this. It's very, there's something very immediate that just hits me. When will trouble let up? This heartache. And also, I would say, as another track, um, oh man, what is the name? Of, it's the last track on the record, Long As You're Living. I think it's called Long As You're Living. Yes. Long as you're yes. living. Long as you're living, always remember, folks who are lazy are playing crazy. Better keep moving, keep on improving. You won't be hurried after you're buried. 
I love the harmonic stuff that's going on in that track with the horn backgrounds and how it kind of feels like this Tetris puzzle that's uh, coming together behind her and kind of pushing the voice forward. And I love that it's just a very simple arrangement. They just, I think they just play the head twice and, or the, the, you know, she sings the song twice. And I think the message is right on and and very solid. Uh, It's very matter of fact. I love that about this album and, and, and her songwriting in general. It's just very much based in truth telling and very like almost philosophical themes, you know, and ways of, of seeing things. Yeah. I hope you listen carefully. They say the truth will make you free. And that's the way you want to be. Cause brother, this is your life. Long as you live in, always remember time is... My choice for fire track actually is, is that same one, long as you're living, because she's singing with so much playfulness and vitality against this horn section that really kind of feels off kilter if you if you kind of zone in on that for a minute and surely that's intentional it's almost comical but as a vocalist abby lincoln is fully serious about what she's saying and you know there are these lines where she says time is for spending but there's an ending while you were sleeping lifetime is creeping like she's telling you that this is an urgent matter there's and you know that degree of urgency it's undeniable. It's hard not to want to get on with the business of living well after you hear that song. And I love it. Forgive me if I seem to preach, but there was something that I had to say. A message that I hope will reach people who are throwing life away. I call it my philosophy. That is why I pass it on to you because it works so well for me. Oliver, what about you? It was the very first track. It's Afro Blue. And I'm always intrigued when lyrics are placed onto songs that were not originally written with lyrics. And I think I have that right about the history of this song because it's a, it's a Mongo Santa Maria tune, which um, also came out in 1959. I think that's the earliest version. She was, I, I also believe, the first person to cover the song after Mongo put it on his album of that year. And it definitely feels to me like this was a song in which the lyrics that that Lincoln is singing, again, these were not written into the original. In other words, this was a song that was written as an instrumental that then had lyrics added as opposed to um, a song that was written with lyrics in mind in terms of the kind of the melodies and chord changes, all those things. And despite the fact that it might have been, in a sense, shoehorned afterwards, I think the lyrics on this song are fantastic, and especially on the chorus where you have Abby singing Shades of Delight, Coco Hue, Riches the Night, Afro Blue. I mean, those are some bars. I mean, that is just poetry in motion right there. So I think for all those reasons, Afro Blue is just, it, it just, it does it for me. Absolutely. Dancing for joy, delicate world, shades of delight, Coco Hue. Rich as the night, Afro blue. There are always kind of moments on an album that stand out to us sonically, you know, whether it's a certain percussive pattern or whether it's an intonation on a vocal. And I really kind of get in, want to get into one of my favorite moments on this record. I absolutely love the song Lonely House. And it 
it feels like a little bit of an obvious answer, given the current fact of everybody being stuck at home because of the pandemic. But there's something about the way she vocalizes within this song that makes the degree of solitude she's experiencing seem somewhat desirable and comforting. Mm. There's also the fact of the piano and trumpet coming in. It's around one minute and 11 seconds. And they answer her to a degree almost as if the house is using both instruments to acknowledge her when she's singing, the house and I are all alone. And it feels like a very adult version of Goodnight Moon in a way to me. <laughs> I know totally. that sounds silly, no, but it, it just sounds so cozy despite the fact that she's singing about loneliness. I love that part in the album. The house and I are all alone Lonely house Lonely me Funny I think for me, it would be, um, and this goes back to Let Up, and it's the beginning of how that song opens is, is one of my favorite moments. And it's the transition from that really bluesy piano opening to when Abby pierces through this kind of smoky atmosphere that the piano and the other players create and just singing Let Up, just the way in which she intonates that, that, that word, that phrase. Y'all stole my moments. Um, I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, um, I was going to talk about Lonely House, which just to add, just to piggyback a little bit, I think that her vocalizing just really kind of embodies the things that she's talking about. At a certain point, uh, she talks, she says that she hears a distant telephone and she sounds like a distant telephone, you know? Um, she her voice kind of trails up. She has her voice has all of this kind of space in it, this loneliness and solitude. So you know that that song is definitely full of kind of music moments that are really illustrative. Sometimes I hear a staircase creaking. Sometimes a distant telephone. Then the quiet settles down again. I'll also say that uh, there's a moment in uh, Laugh Clown Laugh where she, I believe it's after, I believe it's the last time she sings the head. She comes in and it's the music kind of dress. She's kind of drags back and her she, she's repeating the the theme of, of the or the, the main you know melody of of the track and as she repeats it, it gets more and more kind of messy and dragged around. And it's surprising. I remember when I first heard that song, I was surprised by that moment when she kind of like drags it out in a way that you you didn't think. It, re it reminds me of like Johnny Hodges kind of uh, very uh, 
kind of bendy interpretation that he's really known for. Um, and she she has this kind of horn-like quality about her voice, mm. you know? She has mm. a very horn-like, she can, she can have many different timbres, but one of her timbres, I think, is kind of this very kind of sad, kind of horn-like, maybe like a, a Barry Sachs kind of like growl, like deep lament. And I think, um, and, and other times kind of like a more brassy uh, sound kind of in her nose and cheeks. And, um, I, I just, I love that, that interpretation and how it kind of, she's stretching the time back a little bit. Never let your looks be too revealing, laugh clowns, laugh clowns. Is there a slow burner off of here? So a, a track that maybe when you were first listening to the album, you weren't quite as into, but over time has crept up to become one of your favorites. Yeah, I think the song Come Sunday was a song that I kind of didn't really appreciate as a child. I kind of, I remember drop, you know, picking the needle up and moving it, moving it on probably to the last track. Because <laughs> I thought that track was kind of the most badass, like, yeah, mm, let's go. <laughs> with the horn backgrounds that she's like, I'm going to tell you what is going on. Um, but come Sunday is kind of had this feeling that was more, I don't know. There was something more organized about it and something more concrete and kind of still about it. Um, and I think I also was kind of maybe projecting some of my uh, tiredness about going to church and like religion at the time. Like I was probably projecting mm-hmm. some of those feelings onto that song and was like enough goodbye. Yeah. Um, but as an adult or later on, when I came back to that song, it really grew on me as this very, it wasn't religious or concrete or unmovable. It was still in a more spiritual way and um, I think there's something really timeless about that song in particular. Senia, is there a song that you would love to cover from this album? Ooh. Well, I mean, I used to sing Lonely House all the time. That was one of my stairwell songs, and I still love singing it today. However, if I had to pick a cover, I would probably do Long As You're Living. Mm. I would probably do that. I feel like I could do a lot of really fun stuff on the arrangement of that with, like, tricking out those those horn lines like maybe getting down with you know some sampling of them but then like maybe adding some electronic stuff on the mpc or yeah i can see some really funky stuff going down on that i would probably that's probably my pick i really want to hear that i'm just gonna say it (laughs) want to hear that do it do it okay okay maybe (laughs) i'll do it maybe i'll do it while you're sleeping Lifetime is creeping, wake up and taste it, foolish to waste it. 
If you had to describe this album in three words, what three words would you choose? Haunting. Mm. Soulful. Mm. Unassuming. Mm. Interesting choice. I like that. Well, before we bounce out of here, we always want to leave our audience with something dope to step to. So we have some recommendations for what people should check out next if they enjoyed our discussion today and in particular enjoyed the music of Abby Lincoln. Jocelyn, you want to start us off? Max Roach's We Insist Freedom Now Suite. You Mm. know, while that album is attributed to Max Roach, Abby Lincoln features pretty prominently throughout. And I can't imagine that album without her vocal contributions It's largely considered to be Max Roach's master work, and it's one of the first instances where we see jazz utilized to confront social issues of the day. For me, and we've been talking so much about this uh, earlier, it's, it would be a Nina Simone album, because as I was saying earlier, I feel like the two artists have a lot of parallels. And go back to her album from 1959, though in Nina's case, it would, would have been her debut LP, Little Girl Blue. So you also have the blue kind of parallel going on there as well. And I think it's always interesting to listen to the early work by artists that we l- later think of as being iconic. To hear them where they are at the beginning of their of their careers and seeing what kinds of similarities or differences are there between that and and when maybe when we associate them later, I think you know in this case Nina and Abby are a little bit separated by a few years, so they're not exactly the same age, but are kind of close by. But as we were talking about, especially in that first half, what's notable is that after this late 50s period for each of them, they both by the 60s are now moving into civil rights uh, movement work. So there's a lot of reasons why I think it, it, it's useful to listen to Nina and Abby against one another. Um, but all of that aside, in terms of the broader context with this Nina Simone album in particular, I mean, Nina sounded just incredible right out the gate. Um, and this album includes, to me, one of what I think is one of her greatest songs, one of my favorite songs by her, and really, to me, what is the definitive version of a standard that many artists have sung, which is her cover of I Love You, I Loves You, Porgy. Senya, what would you recommend our audience check out after this album? I have two recommendations. One is a track by Charles Mingus called Fables of Phobos. Yes. It's another moment of truth-telling and it's, uh, it is punk in nature. There's, you know... Mingus's work uh it does involve like vocalization and there's another person who's truth telling and fact giving and kind of not caring about what other people are doing has a wild imagination and uh oh look at you 
I can't remember what record that's on. It's it's off of um well he he does a couple of versions of it but this one is from people can't see this but I by sheer coincidence I have the Charles Mingus one of the Charles Mingus albums that has that song on it and this is from the this version is from the presents the Charles Mingus Quartet featuring Eric Dolphy LP so um just a random coincidence of, of an album that, that has a version of the uh, the fables of uh uh this is called the it's on here it's called the original Faubus fables but um, I think Mingus recorded a few times in, in different configurations of that name. And then another uh, completely different kind of style that I would recommend of an album is um, Duke Ellington's Money Jungle album, which is a trio record, which is very unusual for what people think of when they think of Duke Ellington. They think of big band music. Uh, However, that record, I think, has this really stunning minimalism in it of just the three players. It's Mingus, Max Roach, and Ellington. Yeah. And um, I feel that Abby's music and, and in general and in Abby is Blue does employ a lot of minimalism from her lyrics to her arrangements. The fact that there's not a ton of solos on it. Um, I think there is this feeling of space and minimalism and that record Money Jungle, I think is very song like there are there are definitely a, a, there's definitely a lot of improvisation, a lot of chops in the room. Uh, with the three of those heavy hitters together. However, I do feel there's this emphasis on songs. That'll do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Senya Rubinos. What are you working on now and where can we find you? Well, I'm finishing my album. I have one week, actually six days to hand it in to be mixed. So that's, I'm in like ground zero crunch time. So this was a really nice break. You can find me wherever you listen to music. I have a couple uh, new songs coming out very soon. And uh, my last track, Who Shot Ya, came out in the fall. And you can check that out in its video too. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong. And me, Jocelyn Brown, sitting in for Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. Shout out to Thess for the hookup. Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Morgan, and human Swiss army knife Christian Duenas, who also engineers and edits our show. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, normally taping live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Though currently, we're all taping safe from home. If you have a spare minute and haven't already done so, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes as it is a key way that new audience members can find their way to our humble podcast. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HeatRocksPod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and other goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. Thanks for coming through, Jocelyn. Thank you for having me on. Maximumfun.org. 
comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.